0: questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas.
1: Tonight we discuss Echoes of Eden. What secrets of human potential were buried with our ancestors' memories of ET contact? Ancient stories from around the world describe entities which today we would call ETs. But other secrets lie hidden in the world's ancestral narratives, from Senate briefings in Washington, D.C., to secret ceremonies in Southern Africa, from strange phenomena in Australia and Iraq, to mysterious encounters in modern Brazil and ancient Greece. Tonight's discussion about Echoes of Eden will take you around the globe to discover why military, intelligence, and other government agencies are so interested in archaeology, indigenous rituals, and traditional initiation practices. What is the connection between higher cognitive powers like remote viewing and precognition and ET contact in the deep past? What are the implications for you and me?
0: You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, And even cryptocurrency we are now accepting bitcoin litecoin ethereum and more don't forget to visit the veritas store for focused life force energy mms rebounders cbd pure hemp oil pure organic sulfur flash drives with all our sanitas and veritas seasons and other great products and if you want to get in touch with mel want to be a guest on this radio program have a guest suggestion or have feedback just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick.
1: Paul Anthony Wallace is an internationally best-selling author whose books probe world mythologies and ancestral narratives for their insights into human origins, human potential, and our place in the cosmos. As a senior churchman, Paul served as a church doctor, a theological educator, and an archdeacon in the Anglican Church in Australia. And has published numerous titles on Christian mysticism and spirituality. He is a popular speaker at summits and conferences around the world. His books include Escaping from Eden, The Scars of Eden, and the newest, Echoes of Eden, which will be the focus of tonight's interview. In collaboration with The Fifth Kind TV, Paul's interviews and documentaries are watched by millions worldwide. And directly from the capital of Australia, Canberra, I'm privileged to welcome my special guest today, Paul Wallace. Hello, Paul, and welcome to Veritas. How are you?
2: day, Mel. I'm fantastic, thanks, and thanks so much for having me on your show today.
1: Well, first, congratulations on your new book, Echoes of Eden. Paul, I have to ask you, many great authors like you, Eric von Däniken and others use the term Eden a lot. Are you speaking figuratively, or did Eden really exist in one specific location?
2: Well, Eden, as referenced in the Book of Genesis, I believe is a reference to a particular place on planet Earth in the deep past. My research has led me to conclude that it doesn't mean quite what we thought it did; that it's not the place we imagine when we hear that word, because we generally picture a paradise when we hear the word Eden. But I guess the title of my first book in paleocontact, "Escaping from Eden," gives the game way that I think actually something else was going on there than we usually think.
1: If Eden existed, what caused the ancestral memory amnesia? Was it a catastrophe that caused it, or as Barbara Hanclough calls it, catastrophobia, and that's why we don't remember it?
2: That's a really wonderful phrase for it, catastrophobia, because as I research world mythologies and ancestral narratives all around the world, and I went there because I was finding parallels to what is hidden in plain sight in the book of Genesis. What I found was the record of a sequence of previous civilizations and the details of the stories that overlap from culture to culture, from age to age, all seem to resolve revolve around traumatic experiences. And so when you drill down into the ancient text, you've got a blend of remembering and forgetting in the text itself. So I think Catastrophobia puts it rather neatly.
1: Now I want to learn, obviously, I want to learn more about your initiation into the realm of ETs. When and how it began? But before you tell me, your work is in paleocontact. For the audience, can you define that term?
2: Yes, paleocontact is the theory that our ancestors in the deep past had contact with extraterrestrial um, visitations, colonization, visitors from other parts of the cosmos, visitors from other parts of our cosmic family.
1: So now let's go to your initiation. How did you begin in all of this? Your research and even your ET contact, which we'll discuss in a moment. I know Barbara Lamb very well, the beautiful lady that hypnotically regressed you. We'll touch that in a moment. But tell me about your initiation into this world.
2: Well, there are so many start points to this story, but what surprises people about my route into the world of paleocontact is that it's come from the world of Christian ministry. I spent 33 years in church-based ministry as a church doctor, a theological educator, an archdeacon for the Anglican, Anglican Church in Australia. And it was that role as a theological educator that really led me down this rabbit hole because I would teach pastors hermeneutics. And those are the principles of interpreting ancient texts. And this was for them to apply to their teaching from the Bible. And so I'd teach them things like form criticism and source criticism. And that's where you ask, what kind of literature is this that we're studying? You ask it of every text. Where does it come from? Is it the same as the original or does it differ? And if it differs, why does it differ? And then always you ask the fundamental question, What do the words mean? And it was as I applied those tools to some of the anomalies that occur in the stories we generally tell from the Bible that another story began to emerge. And the kind of anomalies, I mean, are the ones anybody would mention. If they were to sit down and read through the book of Genesis, every person would ask questions like this. Even a child with a child's Bible would say, why does God say, let us make let us make the humans to look like one of us? Or why did God make the snake? Couldn't he see something was going to go wrong? And then the death penalty for eating a piece of fruit, that's a bit extreme, isn't it? Now a God of love is genociding people in the flood, and then what is really going on in Genesis 11? Did we really get bombed back into a pre-Stone Age condition because we breached uh, zoning laws and built a building that was too tall? So these are the obvious kinds of questions, and most parents sitting down with a child will give an answer and think, oh, I need to think a bit more about that, and it's no different to preachers. They will preach through the text, they're under pressure to find out the moral of the story is, from Sunday to Sunday, and will think, gosh, I need to drill down into that, there's something else going on there. And it wasn't until I did that and applied those source-critical skills and did some translation work that would get me to the root meanings of the key words, that I realized that these anomalies revolve around translation issues, and that when you favor root meanings over the traditional interpretation of some key words, a whole other layer of story suddenly emerges, and it resolves a lot of these odd grammatical and moral problems. All of a sudden, a story of paleo contact emerges, but it's not a random story. You do the translation work, and what happens is that the Bible does a flip, and it lines up in parallel with its source narratives from out of ancient Sumeria, Babylonia, Arcadia, and Assyria. And the punchline of that discovery is that the source narratives are not about God at all. They are about our ancestors' contact with extraterrestrials.
1: Since in the Western world, we mostly read the King James Version of the Bible, how much...
2: Well, no, change- we don't. No, no, we don't. Uh, English-speaking people read the King James, and only some English people. Well, that, that is correct. The, the Western world is full of a whole plethora of translations. Exactly. It's, it's, it's one of the things that ought to clue anybody that it would be helpful to look at the original languages, because whatever Bible you have in front of you, it's going to be a translation of the Greek, in which the texts are originally written in the New Testament, or the Hebrew or Aramaic of the Old Testament. And so it's when you get beyond the English translation and go to the original languages that these other meanings start emerging. And it's interesting you mentioned the King James Mel, because I think one of the reasons that we can miss... The extraterrestrial layer to the story is that between the text being written a couple of thousand years ago, uh, two and a half thousand years ago, three thousand years ago, between the time of authorship and the time of reading, we have had generations of translators trying to convey what's in the original text. So when you get to the King James, you've got a Bible that's been written essentially in the language of the 1500s to describe all the phenomena in the Bible. And so when a translator comes across a description of technology, spacefaring technology, interdimensional technology, remote communication technology, those translators had no kind of grid by which to describe those things. Now, you and I today know what a rocket launch looks and sounds like. We have some idea of what a wormhole might look like and how it might perform. We have the concept of an ET, a close encounter. We have the concept of artificial insemination, so on and so forth. So when we find these phenomena in the ancient texts, it's easy for us to read them and say, oh, I think I know what's going on there. Poor translators working on the King James Bible, had no clue about any of those things. And it's why some of the technological aspects of the Bible became lost, because the translators had no grid by which to translate them in technological terms. And so they translated them in spiritual terms. They supernaturalized the stories. And so that's why it's a great gift to us that we still have access to so many of the very early Hebrew and Greek texts that we can go back and ask... Did we read that right? Did we translate that right?
1: Well, that was my point. I was starting with the King James Bible, but in reality, as of 2020, I believe, the full Bible has been translated into 704 languages. The New Testament has been translated into an additional 1,551 languages and Bible portions or stories into 1,160. So in reality, the Bible has been translated (laughs) into 3,000. 415 languages. So how do we determine the real meaning of the original, uh, that we say, authors?
2: Well, this is the great gift of, of the texts that are used and that appeal to in the work of Bible translation, that we have very reliable Hebrew texts, very reliable Greek texts, very close in date to the date of authorship. And so Every time a Bible translation is put forth, the scholars uh, will go back to those texts and they will ask afresh, Did we, have we translated this right? But they'll also ask the question, how do we render this in a way that our readership will get what's going on? And that's one of the reasons we have so many translations. Partly it's about reaching different language groups, and that's the main reason. And many of our planet's spoken languages become written for the first time when they get written to produce a New Testament as uh, as Christianity goes into those territories, which is a fascinating story all its own. But then other questions are asked. So, for instance, the Good News Bible is a very popular Bible around the world, English-speaking Bible. And part of the Choices they make are based on presenting an English in Bi- a Bible in English that will be understood by readers whose second language is English. So they favour shorter words if ever they have a choice. They favour non-technical words if ever there's a choice. And so when people want to go a little bit deeper in their Bible study, I always say it will have more than one translation because then sort of by triangulation, you can get a sense of, oh, this is what's going on in the original text. If it comes out this way and this one, this way and this one, I get a sense of what's going on. But when you're doing uh, formal Bible translation uh, as a scholar, you will always go to the Hebrew and the Greek, and the great fidelity with which those texts have been preserved through the ages is a huge gift, because we can go back and be pretty sure that we are reading the same Hebrew text that was read in the 5th century BCE for instance the problem occurs when we go back earlier and we have to start looking at how did the bible form and what were the stories before they took the shape that we're now familiar with and there's a very broad scholarly consensus around the world that the Hebrew canon the old testament as we call it took its current shape Sometime in the 6th century BCE, when a, a major edit was done over all those books to create what would appear to be a seamless story of God from beginning to end, turn it into a single book that would teach monotheism. Prior to that, it was a kaleidoscopic canon full of all kinds of entities and encounters that had to be adjusted slightly in order to fit into that monotheistic worldview. So go back earlier, look at the history of the formation, and again, you find the earlier stories, the earlier uh, renderings of those words, and it's a totally different picture that emerges.
1: Was it similar to what happened in Egypt with Akinathem when when he introduced monotheism, monotheism as opposed to what they had before?
2: Well, a little different in the sense that Monotheism didn't bed down too well in Egypt because it disempowered all the previous priesthoods. And so politically, it was a very difficult thing to maintain. Um, And for that reason, things reverted to a more polytheistic worldview. Whereas with the Bible, there there is a progression towards monotheism and an attempt to hide the polytheistic roots of Judaism, and the polytheistic practice, and all the stories of first contact that were in Judaism as well, and the ceremonies that record first contact. And so you listen to the stories of the prophets, and very often they are calling on the people of God to clean up Judaism, and get rid of all these other things, and pare it down to a monotheistic religion. Uh, There's a king, Josiah, who's hailed as a great reforming king, because he went out and Tried to put a stop to all the ceremonies that were carrying more ancient Jewish memory of paleo contact because he wanted a simple, clean story of monotheism with God and the king at the top, uh, the high priests somewhere in the middle and the public servants, and then the priests and the people at the bottom meekly praying and obeying so there's a big cleanup operation and it more or less stuck today when you talk about judaism people will say ah oh, yes it's one of the world's three great monotheistic religions well no that's not what judaism was until there was that cleanup right at the end and even that wasn't wholly successful and even the airbrushing of the hebrew scriptures wasn't wholly successful because the shape of these other narratives remains and it doesn't take too much translation work to bring them to the surface
1: to what do you attribute the number of books that were removed from the bible like excluded and i wonder how much of the new information was adulterated to avoid what was coming to be new religions book of enoch comes to mind 14 15 other books were removed as well maybe maybe more
2: well the the books were part of a wider canon for a short time so we're we're familiar with the hebrew canon as it is so most bibles you go to them and it'll be the same list of books in the old testament the books that were removed that people talk about belong to a bigger canon and that came into being when between the 3rd and 1st century bce jewish scribes worked to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, there was a strong demand for monotheistic religion around the world at that time, a real interest in it. People were catching on to the idea that there might actually be only one cosmic source, one source of everything in the universe, and people interested in the ancient stories that carried that information. And Judaism appeared to be one of those at that time after the 6th century BCE edit. And so they worked to put it into Greek, which was the lingua franca of the international world. So they translated the Hebrew canon into Greek, and they also translated other books that had come to be used in mainstream Judaism that were almost accorded the same authority as the other scriptural books, and that included books like the book of uh, Enoch, uh, Maccabees, um, Judas, Tobit um, other books and so by the time you get to the year dot and Jesus comes on the scene when, when those who wrote for Jesus quote from the Hebrew Scriptures they're actually quoting from this wider canon, the Greek canon that was known as the Septuagint and it's the Hebrew Scriptures plus these other books and so that was the canon of what we call the Old Testament for some time And then later, it was around the fourth century of the common era, that Orthodox Judaism decided it needed to clarify there's a difference in authority between those extra books and the original Hebrew books. So now you have the proto-canon and the deutero-canon. And so, strictly speaking, in the Hebrew scriptures, it just goes back to the original list. Something very similar happened in Christianity, but it was at the time of the Reformation, uh, a thousand years later. And again, Christian theologians said there is a difference in authority between that second canon and the first canon. The first canon is the real stuff. The second canon is a little bit like fan fiction. So we'll, we'll relegate that. And so in some Bibles, they were just taken out. In other Bibles, it was just in a different section called the Deuterocanon or the Second Canon. So it's all, it's all been done in plain sight. We've always had access to these books. They've never been banned or hidden. It's just a matter of whether they're in the Bible that you buy, or, or an appendix, or in a separate book. I have Bibles that are both Catholic and Protestant that have those books in it. And if you want the oldest continuous canon for a Christian Bible— You would go to Ethiopia because it's there that you'll find that extended canon in the Old Testament, including the Book of Enoch, some other very interesting books besides. Bell and the Dragon is a really fascinating one for our conversation. So they've always been there, but a lot of Protestant Bibles leave them out because they don't feel they are fully scriptural. But even the Protestant Church says it's valuable to go and read them and study them, and I've certainly found that to be the case because it shines a light on how to interpret the other books, how to interpret dragon narratives? Do we take them literally, metaphorically? are they social stories, or are they memories of paleo contact? You read all the books together and they begin to finesse and shine a light on each other.
1: Now, I wanted to ask you this question about Ethiopia later, because I had some notes here. Why is Ethiopia such an important place? It has maintained a canon for the Bible, as you say, which is longer lived than any other Christian in history, and it allegedly houses the Ark of the Covenant. Why is Ethiopia such an important place?
2: Well, that's a really good question. Uh, You've kind of answered it with the question it. It has this very long, undisturbed religious history, whereas in the West, we're marked by schisms and colonization. We've got the schism between Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism uh, in, when was that, 1054, and then you've got the Reformation in the 1500s that sort of splinters everything. And every group sort of reinvents itself and uh, reinvents the wheel, so to speak. There's always that conflict among the traditions that have emerged through those schisms. You've got the persecutions then that followed in the 1600s and the 1700s that led to a plethora of denominations. And that just hasn't been a part of the experience of Ethiopia. Christianity has been a more continual grassroots experience. And not only the scriptures, but the ceremonies they perform in that church are deeply, deeply ancient. It gets a noble mention in the New Testament itself, saying that the chancellor of the exchequer for Ethiopia was a convert at the time of the apostles, and that the Ethiopian Orthodox Church really dates its existence right back to that period. Now, some other Orthodox churches make similar claims, but Ethiopia really did have a pretty undisturbed story of Christianity for a long, long time. So it's fascinating to go there if you want to find earlier forms. Um, In the meantime, uh, a whole world of change has happened in in the West. So it's a kind of a plumb line that's that's always been maintained. And they have maintained the Book of Enoch within the canon. They still regard the Book of Enoch as a canonical book, which is – Exciting because of the information in the book, Uh, and it was because of the information in the book that the Book of Enoch was not included in other canons. It includes stories of paleo contact, it includes stories that suggest cosmic travel, it details um, contact with other species hybridizing with humanity in the deep past. And these were all themes that were really not part of the neat and tidy Judaism that was wanted. certainly by the 6th century BCE, and so that was one of the reasons it kind of got sidelined in the way it was, but the Ethiopians, bless them, have maintained it. And if you want to read the Book of Enoch today, it will be, the most reliable way to read it is to read the Ethiopian books.
1: Exactly. This is why I'm saying Ethiopian orthodoxy has lived continually with the same list of holy books, as you say, among them, again, the Book of Enoch, which was removed from Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy from the, the Old Testament in Christianity and Judaism in the canon of Hebrew scripture because it was too controversial. The emerging orthodoxies of Christianity and Judaism. The book included tales of Balian contact and ancient hybridization. Now, I wanted to touch this later because I wanted to discuss your hypnotic regression with Barbara Lamb, but we jumped into Ethiopia. So they all of this is included in the Book of Enoch?
2: Yes, it is. Yes, it's, it's all there. I mean, some scholars want to interpret it in other ways, but uh, they have to do a bit of legwork to do that, because on face value, all those things are in the text.
1: Now let's go back now to your story. Obviously, if you went to Barbara Lamb, I don't mean to make any assumptions, but it's because you wanted to learn more about what you went through. Can you discuss what she found and what you found eventually.
2: Sure. The reason I went there was that uh, when I wrote Escaping from Eden, it was an entirely research-based book looking at translation issues in the Bible and finding that it opened up this world of ET contact. After I'd published Escaping from Eden, people started contacting me wanting to share their own experiences because there's such a taboo around the whole idea of ET contact That most people who experience a close encounter have nobody to tell. No one to talk to who won't think they're crazy. So I started hearing from people who had experience. many of them, uh, decades in the past. I remember a few men in particular contacting me and saying, I haven't told another living, breathing soul about this since the day it happened. I've told my wife. I've spoken to the person who's with me at the time. I haven't told anybody else in the 50 years since it happened. So that's the power of taboo and the fear of ridicule. But before people like that were willing to share their story with me, a stranger, they wanted to sound me out and find out if I really was trustworthy with their story. And so they would ask, Paul, have you ever experienced a close encounter? And my answer was, no, I haven't, but I have many friends who have. And so they would open up to me. But the more stories I heard, the more I thought, wait a minute, what they're describing sounds exactly like what I can remember happening to me when I was 20. And bit by bit, I began joining the dots, and I realized I had five experiences when I was 20 years old that I'd never been able to get my head around. I'd never understood what they were about, what was going on, I had a fragment of memory, I could remember the first couple of minutes of something happening, then I didn't know what happened next, and it was all very vague and puzzling. Now, at the time, I tried to interpret these experiences through the grid of my evangelical Christian faith, and that faith meant that my universe had to fit into various boxes. I had boxes for God, the devil, angels, demons, humans, animal, vegetable, mineral, and the whole universe had to fit into those boxes, and so thinking about these odd experiences, I thought, well, the frightening, scary ones must have been demonic, and the positive, elevating ones must have been angelic. Except my experiences didn't quite fit. What I thought was a demonic experience, I reflected, no, those were actually physical entities, and that's not uh, that's not the demonic story of the Bible. They were something else. And those experiences over there, well, were they really angelic? Because two of those angelic beings had a a toddler with them. Are there toddler angels? I don't think so. That doesn't really fit. And so these stories never fitted for me. I had to puzzle over them for a long, long time. And the more I heard from others, the more I thought there's another layer to these experiences. I'd like to remember more. And so in The Scars of Eden, the tagline of that book is, has humanity confused the idea of God with memories of E.T. contact? And so that book seeks to resurface the world's memories of E.T. contact. And one of the running themes of the book is that while I'm doing that, my own memories of E.T. contact are beginning to resurface. So we get to the end of The Scars of Eden, and I've decided I want to dig a bit deeper into my own experience. I'll do a session with Barbara Lamb. Let her put me into a state of deep relaxation. I chose her because she's worked with um, a couple of thousand people who've had close encounter experiences and helped them to retrieve lost memory and help them to process what's happened and and come to a place where they're not living in either puzzlement or, or abject terror. So she's peerless in the amount of experience she has in that area. So I went to Barbara Lamb. And she put me into a state of deep relaxation to see if I could retrieve further memory. And that's where I go in Echoes of Eden. But I found that what was more significant than getting extra detail from what I'd remembered from those encounters was understanding what the significance of those encounters had been for me. And I realized that it really changed my life. It turned me into someone who would always notice an anomaly for what it is. If there's a narrative that doesn't make sense, if someone's had an experience that we can't understand or interpret, I'm never one to explain it away. If there's something in the Bible that doesn't fit or doesn't make sense, I'm never someone to gloss over it. And that sense of always looking for the hidden stories, what is not visible, what has not been disclosed, has always been an impulse within me, And it's really informed a lot of my work in ministry. A lot of my work was as a church doctor. And if you're going into a church to help address problems, then looking for the hidden stories, breaking the taboos, finding out what's not on the surface is really vital and essential to that work. So it was that was the really powerful therefore for me, that it slightly altered the course of my life. But my experiences that I talked to Barbara Lamb about are, they're not really dramatic ones. They're not sort of whitley type experiences. They're much vaguer. They don't prove anything. They're very subjective. And I share them because I want to encourage people who have experiences like that to feel free to share them. My stories sound like stories of nothing. But I reckon if you sat down any group of friends or any family circle and asked the question, have you ever experienced Anything that you couldn't explain, I reckon everyone would have a story if we would give each other permission to share stories that don't prove anything, that do sound a bit vague, that are only half-memories. And as we pull stories like that, that's when the bigger picture begins to emerge, a bigger picture that says, in this cosmos, on this planet, we're not alone.
1: Not only permission, but safe ground to disclose what they know. Because most people That's right. fear the ridicule, the scorn, the uh, being uh, shunned by society. But you say in the book, quote, pursuing this research has cost me income, reputation, and a few friends, end quote. And I smiled, and I smiled because I can empathize with the feeling as I have gone through that myself, especially the friends part. But I also wouldn't change it for the world. Now, why is paleocontact still taboo with Christianity, even in the 21st century? Not only is it taboo, it's ridicule and scorn by the religious oversellers, a policy of government and mainstream media, and a cultural bias in general. Why, Paul?
2: Well, I think the taboo has a lot of momentum behind it. The idea of a populated universe and of contact in the present or in the deep past was part of the mainstream conversation of Christianity in the beginning, but it... It came to Boo quite quickly. As the New Testament canon took its shape, um, the canonical Gospels were chosen, other Gospels were excluded. And those other Gospels had some quite interesting ideas about our place in the cosmos, other entities washing around in the texts. Christianity chose to glue the 6th century edit of the Hebrew Scriptures onto the apostolic writings, to make a Bible, and so they glued on a story that had airbrushed out all the ETs. And I think that it was useful to the Roman Empire to have a very neat and tidy form of religion that would have God and the emperor at the top, the senators and the bishops in the middle, and the priests and the people at the bottom praying, paying, and obeying. And uh, ancestral narratives, or Gnostic narratives, that would suggest grassroots power grassroots contact cosmic information uh, really muddied that picture, really messed that up. Any empire or government really wants full-spectrum dominance over its people. It wants to be the department of truth for its people. It doesn't want there to be alternative news agencies. If the empire says there was no massacre when we went into such and such a country, it doesn't want alternative news agencies saying, Oh, yes, there was. It wants to be the arbiter of what's true, what's false, what's news, what's fake news. And so it will get rid of all the other news agencies and all the other authorities. And in the ancient past, that meant incinerating the books that contradict your own. And it meant slaughtering the priests who were the other news agencies of the day And so you look at the history of colonization under Rome, and you've got the eradication of these other stories that carried information about paleocontact and higher human cognitive abilities. Those two strands are completely enmeshed in each other, in ancient ancestral story. And then that repeats through the centuries. If you think about what happened when the Catholic forces of Portugal and Spain went into Central and South America— They did what the Romans had done, but they did it sort of all in one hit. They incinerated the written culture of the um, Mayan-based cultures, and it was a literary culture. So they incinerated vast libraries of books full of these narratives of human potential, higher cognitive abilities, and paleocontact. And they slaughtered the priests so that just in case any of those texts should survive, there'd be no one left who knew how to read them. And so very often this suppression of these wider stories is very, very violent, and you learn to toe the line. If the agenda is we're deleting the old stories and replacing them with orthodox Christianity, well, if you want to get on as a family, if you want to get a good job, if you want to be left alone in peace, then you will just buy into the new orthodoxy, and all the old memory will be lost. Sometimes it happens in less violent ways. When Britain went into Ghana, for instance, in 1874, uh, it had to deal with the ancestral narratives of that country. Once they'd taken over, they wanted to delete and replace the old stories and the old ways with Christian orthodoxy. Well, they didn't do it by slaughtering all the priests in Ghana. What they did was create an environment where if you wanted to get on You would learn to speak British and dress British and act British and think British. And to the extent that you could do that, well, then you'd be a good candidate for a good job promotion, so on and so forth. And if you had a mother, grandmother, aunt who hadn't quite bought into that cultural shift, who still practiced the old ways, who still would use protocols for contact, who would still use the old ceremonies for healing, who had old information about who we are and the other company we keep on planet Earth, well, you'd be ashamed of that grandmother. You would call them an idolater or a witch doctor. And all this dark demonizing language is used to make you embarrassed to be associated with the old stories and proud of associating with the British stories. And so it's through that cultural cringe, something a bit stronger than the ridicule factor, a shaming factor, that the old stories are pushed away and the new one is endorsed. I think in the same way that the Roman Empire wanted full-spectrum control over what people thought, uh, it's no different today. I think that governments still want to say, we know what's going on, we're the arbiters of what's true and what's false, we're your department of truth, we're your department of health, we are the ones who empower you they don't want that world complicated by other sources of power or information. Whistleblowers don't do well in Western society, even today. And I think for all those reasons, for the sake of simple, easy, quiet governance of the people, these other authorities and other entities are pushed out of the picture. I don't think it would help any of our world leaders to stand up and say, actually, none of us are really in charge because there's a non-human layer to the governance of the planet that we haven't told you about. This is such
1: a kaleidoscopic conversation because when you started talking about the, the parts of America, I'm thinking of Mexico, Mesoamerica, even South America. When the Spaniards came during the conquista to this part of the world, they did exactly the same thing, the same way the the Romans did it but instead, if you go to Mexico, for example, and you probably have been to this side of the world, you see that, without a doubt, almost in every major church, if you look underneath, there was a Mayan or an Aztec temple before, almost to just erase the past. Yes. And the same thing happened with the, the slaves that came to this part of the world. When we have Catholicism all this part of the world, but they still wanted to, to just you know engage in voodoo or santeria, what did they use? Exactly. They use all the Catholic, you know, the Catholic uh, saints in order for them to be able to pass as if they were being, you know, good old Catholics for the new world.
2: Yeah, that's right. I saw exactly the same thing, Mel, when I went to Brazil. And this was years ago. I, If people read Echoes of Eden, they'll think, oh my goodness, how did Paul squeeze all this travel into the 12 months since his last book?
1: <laughs> I thought the same. In
2: reality, it's decades of travel that's in the book, it comes across as a single story, but it was the 1980s, when I was in Amazonia, and I was there at a time of harvest festival. And I thought I understood what was happening in front of me, I thought this was a ceremony to thank the mother of Jesus for another successful harvest. Well, I had a guide called Augusto, who encouraged me to ask more probing questions to work out what was going on, and he said, Don't mistake all this for Roman Catholicism, he said. Everything that's done outside the church before we go in for the mass has nothing to do with Roman Catholicism. And don't assume because people have got figurines in their homes that look like Catholic saints that it's Catholic ceremonies they're performing. And he pointed out that Brazil is rich with Portuguese Catholicism, but also with ancient indigenous Amazonian knowledge and ceremony and protocol, and also Western African knowledge and ceremony and protocol that came over when Africans were brought over to slave in the plantations of Brazil. All those layers are there, so you might want to dig a bit deeper, he said. So the next time we went to a harvest festival, I asked questions about the, the corn figurines that were being held. Who was this queen of heaven we were thanking? And was it for the harvest, or was it something else? And the story that emerged is that we were thanking the Queen of Heaven because she came thousands of years ago. So it was long before the mother of Jesus. The Queen of Heaven came from the heavens, from space, down to our planet, and taught our ancestors all the secrets of agriculture. How to turn a naturally occurring plant into cultivatable corn and then how to turn that corn into all kinds of foods and drinks and all those foods and drinks were part of the celebration and so bit by bit I was working out this is not the story of Mary the mother of Jesus this is a story of first contact very similar to stories from uh, Native Americans in North America aboriginal australians in australia the ancient babylonians with their story of oannes and the Apkalu, the zulu people with their story of Umbab, wana warisa uh, the the sumerian stories with the story of shamhat teaching the primitive man how to farm the accoutrements of civilization all these cultures have a story from the deep past tens of thousands of years ago when visitors came from another region of space came to our planet, sat with our ancestors, and taught us the rudiments of how to live as a civilization on the planet. And this was what was being celebrated in Brazil. Well, at the time, it was explained to me, I didn't really understand what I was being told. It took me decades to process that that was what was going on. But the extra thing that was happening was that Pope John Paul II was trying to clean up these harvest festivals. Pope John Paul II wanted to get rid of the indigenous elements of these ceremonies and the African elements of these ceremonies wanted to purge these harvest festivals of any memory of contact and turn it back into a Roman Catholic with thanking Our Lady for this year's harvest. And what he was doing through the church authorities in Brazil in the 1980s was exactly the same as what you would have seen happening in the environs of Jerusalem in the 7th century BCE when King Josiah was trying to clean up the harvest festivals there. Very similar festivals where you'd hold a female figurine and thank that figurine, Asherah, for the first contact when our ancestors were taught agriculture. So it's a really curious thing that the same memory has survived through the ages. And in every generation, there's an attempt to suppress it and get rid of it. And the attempt is always unsuccessful.
1: Well, we we're in the 21st century and the censorship continues. But this is 1989 in Brazil. The Catholic Church was trying to sh- to, sh- to, sh- to, sh- to sh- shoot you down there. And basically, you were, you were attending a grassroots event. Did ditch. Did they shut you down or did you proceed with what you had to do when you were there?
2: Well, the events carried on because the locals were resisting this cleaning up that was going on because what it really meant was an attempt, again, similar to what the British had attempted in Ghana, to shame you into ridding yourself of your indigenous heritage. That's how they saw it, ridding yourself of your African heritage And Brazilians, uh, they're more, they're a prouder people than that. And they did not want to do that. They would not be made to feel embarrassed by their indigenous mum or grandmother or their African great-grandfather. They wanted to celebrate the fullness of what it means to be Brazilian. And it's something very wonderful, I think, about Brazilian culture, that it really is very multicultural, very multi ethnic, that people are very comfortable celebrating who they are. And so Pope John Paul II's attempts to clean up were not meeting with much success.
1: I don't know if you're seeing the trend in Mexico, but things are changing that way there. They're removing statues. I they, they used to live there for two years in the 90s, uh, very close to the largest statue of Christopher Columbus. And I was there a few months ago walking by, and I'm like, where is the statue? And now they're replacing it with a native female. So I don't know if they're going back to the roots, or perhaps there's too much pressure from society to accept, as you say, the multiculturalism that is embedded into all of society.
2: It's, it, it's a really interesting issue, this issue of um, getting rid of statues that honor the wrong things. I wonder if it might be helpful to have built a um, a much larger statue of the indigenous woman to dwarf Columbus instead <laughs> because I like the message that that sends out because I think it's important that we remember uh, the uh, the dark side of colonization and then stop and ask why? What was that about? Why were they so frightened of the indigenous story? Why did they feel it necessary to slaughter so many priesthoods around the world? What were the narratives that they wanted to silence? And I think these moments of violence are a bit of a smoking gun. And when these things are done and justified by a vision of God, I think we need to remember that and think, well, clearly the vision of God was wrong if it justified such atrocious things. So I quite like the idea of an indigenous statue dwarfing the Columbus statue so that we remember all of what went on and not miss the clues as to this pattern of suppression and survival that endures through the ages.
1: Well, I think of pre-colonization time, if we were told that we had to follow the science. And there were people here for thousands of years before Columbus came along. Why do we use the word "discovery"?
2: Yes, of course. Yes, exactly. It's it's the same thing here. Um, my kids in school uh, are being taught at the moment about the people who discovered Australia <laughs> and discovered New Zealand, and of course, it's talking about Europeans. And so I do check in with them each day and make sure that they remember on a daily basis these people did not discover <laughs> these continents. They, um, they invaded them, and they took them for European empires. But there were people who had been living here quite happily for tens of thousands of years. Thank you very much.
1: Well, why don't they just say they discovered the route for Europe? That's the extent of yes, what it should that's
2: be. Right. It, that's right. Yeah, I like how you put that, Mel. I think that's right. I think that's
1: much better. Now, let's go to Arizona now, where I am now. This is 2006. Tell us about Troy and his story of initiation, because I think this is so appropriate now. I think children, especially males, and I don't mean to be criticizing women because they can initiate as well, but the males in the native communities in the United States, at least, and probably all of, of the Americas, they had an initiation when they became Men, Tell me about Troy.
2: Well, firstly, Mel, I I want to affirm what you just said. I really agree with you. I think that guys in particular are suffering for lack of initiation in mainstream society at the moment. And we're now in a culture where where youth is where it's at. Everybody tries to hold on to their youth for as long as they possibly can, even if it means having surgery to try and look younger than they are. And I think it's because there's an anxiety in mainstream society about growing older. Men don't know how to become adult men. They really have to piece it together in a, in a rather uncomfortable, piecemeal way. Um, Following their noses, kind of way, and we miss what happened in the ancient past when a boy would reach the age of thirteen, and then the adult males would take him to one side and teach him. This is what it means to be a grown-up guy. And I spent many years in student ministry, working among uh, male students in particular who really struggled with self-esteem, self-confidence, self-knowledge, because they hadn't had that from their dads. No discredit to their dads, it's just how we organize society, we don't do that anymore and so I think there is a bit of a hunger for what was done in the past traditional cultures have tried to maintain it but even that's an interesting picture because between 1880 and 1980 in the United States of America traditional initiations among Native Americans were illegalized because it was seen that if they could stop initiation for 100 years, and this was done 1880 to 1980 in the USA, Canada, and Australia. So it was a concerted effort. They wanted to put a stop to the knowledge that was passed on through the initiation and any um, higher cognitive powers that get nurtured through that initiation. My introduction to this was, as you say, my friend Troy, who was living a perfectly conventional Western life in Arizona until he came home from school. One day he was 13 years old and he was surprised to see an unfamiliar vehicle outside his home. And he thought, oh, okay, mum and dad have got guests. So he goes in, walks into the living room and it is stopped in his tracks by what's happening in front of him because his mum and dad And his grandfather are in one corner of the room, and they're looking like they've just been—they've just seen a ghost or something—and they're they're very emotional. And then on the other side of the room are two very stern-looking adult males he's never seen before. And his his mum, who's nearly in tears, beckons Troy over and says, "Honey, you've been a good boy. Uh, We love you very much. Remember everything we've taught you. You go with these men now." And he had no idea what was about to happen. Well, within hours, he had gone with these men, with a group of other 13-year-old boys, been deposited in country. They had no idea where they were, looking out on a horizon they didn't recognize. And the adult men are saying, you guys will need to find water and shelter. Um, I'd start with water if I were you. And uh, we'll be back sometime to see how you're going.
1: You're not talking about an episode of Survivor here. Are you talking about (laughs) a Native American reservation and a child who's going to become a man now?
2: That's exactly what it is. A group of 13-year-olds left on their own in the wilderness. Now, Troy did later discover they were being observed all the time, but they didn't know that at the time, and they were out there for weeks on end learning how to survive. So from scratch, they have to learn all the skills that their people had known for tens of thousands of years because the thing all these 13-year-olds had in common was they were Navajo. And this was the initiation process for the Navajo people. And Troy was beginning a series of initiation ceremonies that would prepare him for the work of a guardian of the Navajo people. So he's a real person, he's a friend of mine, and his job is to curate not only the stories, but as I say, higher cognitive abilities that have been curated by the Navajo people uh, from time immemorial. But they were having to work them out from scratch, uh, living out in the wilderness. And so, in the first instance, it's physical skills. By the time he next saw his mom and dad, he was a different boy. His hair was longer. He was wearing different clothes. They'd all outgrown their clothes and shoes, so they'd had to learn to make their own clothing and make their own moccasins. They'd had to learn to hunt. they had to learn how to build structures. they had to learn to eat the local flora without poisoning themselves, so on and so forth. And that was just the start of it. Later ceremonies were done where they were taken away again, And other protocols were taught them that taught them how to heighten their other senses so that they could begin to relate not just to the visible world around them, but tune into other dimensional realities, if I can put it that way. So, Troy very kindly shared a great deal of that story with me, and it made sense of why colonizing forces have been so anxious to extinguish indigenous tradition indigenous knowledge indigenous culture because if they if they remain intact with their alternative knowledge and powers they're very difficult to govern and any colonizing force wants an easy to govern people and that's why these draconian laws illegalizing initiation were brought in that's why all three of those countries the USA Canada and Australia operated stolen generation policies for 100 years, separating children from their indigenous families so they could not be um, recipients of their traditional knowledge. And I tell the story of Ken Thomas in Canada, for instance, kidnapped when he was six years old by Catholic nuns and taken to a, a youth detention center, we should rightly call it. And the first thing they do to him when they get him there is shave off all his hair. This has nothing to do with Christianity or or turning a First Nation Canadian into a good, compliant Christian. It has to do with cutting Ken off from his people, his identity, and all the cognitive powers associated with long hair in his First Nation culture.
1: And for anyone that doesn't know this, research why natives around the world left their hair long is not just visual appearance, there's other reasons. But you're opening some important doors here. I've been in Arizona for almost 25 years, and I've always wondered, this is so hot in the summer. You've been here, I believe, right? You have been to to this part of the world?
2: I've not ventured into Arizona quite yet. I'm I'm sure I will do one day.
1: We'll look forward to having you here. But it is so hot in the summer, and you see the plains and the mountains, and you think, all these tribes that were here at one point in history and still are. If you drive through the desert, you see them here. And I've had the privilege of speaking with Hopi and Navajo and and Apache. And it's what you just said. It's the initiation to be able to survive so that if another another group of, of conquistas comes to this part of the world, you'll always be sovereign. I mean, I don't mean to bring this up right now, but you see what's happening around the world with inflation and, and, and supply chain disruptions and and scarcity and so on. The people who were not prepared are going to have a hard time enduring this. But those sons of the soil, as I call them, the people who know the soil, who know the land, those are the ones who are going to survive this upcoming, whatever it is that's coming.
2: Yes, that's right. And uh... It's interesting you mentioned that. I think you're absolutely right. It would not take much to disrupt uh, most people's lives in Western society. Let's use that phrase for it. People who are dependent on electricity and on the Internet. If you get rid of those things, we're, we're plunged back into a pre-industrial age. Really quickly. <laughs> yes. If we have wars that interfere with our supply chains or – another health emergency, then the very basic skills of living off the land become very relevant. The skills not only of feeding yourself, but of medicating yourself become vital to your family's survival. And at that point, those of us who don't have traditional indigenous culture in our family will be sitting at the feet of those who do uh, to gain the skills we desperately need. We moved house last year from the Australian Capital Territory to just outside because we wanted to relearn how to grow more of our own food. And it had been so long since I had done that or my wife had done that that we couldn't recognize in our garden what were weeds and what was food. Fortunately, we had a next-door neighbor who used to run a farm was able to come around and identify all the plants for us. So I've already had something of this experience where the the dynamics reverse slightly, and the experts are the oldest continual cultures on the planet's surface. Now, when Europeans went into North America, something of that had to happen. And I reckon that would have made the let's say, the British and the Spanish and the Dutch and the French invaders a little nervous when their people, who they're trying to govern, are going to the local indigenous peoples for expertise. And I reckon they worked out pretty quickly they were going to have to find a way to stomp on that. Otherwise, they would uh, accidentally establish the wrong kind of social order in what they wanted to be their new territories. They wanted to be at the top of the tree. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of this dark demonizing language came in, you know, talking about witch doctors and idol worshippers and making people fearful of the indigenous peoples of the land that they're just occupied.
1: By the way, what you said about Canada, I've done shows about this and what they have found very close to those Catholic schools buried. I'm not gonna go into this, but you, you have an idea what i am what, what, what I'm thinking, right?
2: Absolutely. And what's happened in Canada has happened in other places too, Australia and, and the USA. And I think it's important when you see those things in the news, it's, it is horrible and it's horrific. You might not want to dwell on it, but it's worth just asking why? Why was that done?
1: Well, the powers that want to be, they want compliant and obedient people. They want a hive mind of non-thinkers, weak and in fear. Why? Because they're they the easiest to manipulate and govern, as you said. But we have to take a one and only break. When we come back, I want to discuss more of this. Do you think... I'll get the answer on the other side. Do you think this is why young adults... And I'm talking about people in their 30s or 40s. When I say young adults, seek adrenaline-filled rides, skydiving, bungee jumping, speeding in their vehicles. Because they haven't gone through a proper initiation. I will continue discussing your experiences and your travels around the world. How can people buy Echoes of Eden and your other books?
2: Oh, you can go to Amazon, Kindle, those are the best places to start, but you can go to other platforms, like Book Depository, Barnes & Noble, Hive, and you'll find Escaping from Eden, The Scars of Eden, Echoes of Eden. And if you want to get into conversation with me about what you find in those books, you can find me on the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube and the Fifth Kind TV or come to my website, which is paulanthonywallis.com.
1: Wonderful, fascinating first hour, and we're going to get deeper in part two. This is Mel Haslerick. My special guest is Paul Wallace. We'll be right back. Thank you for
3: listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it and click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know. It may be gravity that holds you up. and powerful is near And it travels up the shattered road to Eden
1: Breaking down the barriers of fear It stimulates the space that lies between
3: us Our two spirits through the senses touch and feel This sanity that tells us what we're feeling